If you have your Bibles tonight, and you would, we're going to be at the very bottom of the first page that you have there. And uh, I left that for a reason. Uh, Last week we looked at the church, and we've been looking at the church, uh, the leadership of the church, uh, uh, all things about the church that we believe as Baptists. And so we've been going verse by verse uh, through that uh, Baptist faith and message. And uh, so last week we looked at uh, who we are as a church, uh, the blessings that we enjoy. Uh, we looked at how we're the temple of God. We looked at how there is power when we gather as a church family. And everything is all about Him, that He is the head of the church. And so uh, there at the very bottom of that first page, it says, Jesus is our foundation and cornerstone. And so if you flip over on the back, you will see that verse from Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19. And so, since you're not finding it in your Bible tonight, it shouldn't take us very long to read these like usual. Uh, But if someone would like to read Ephesians 2, uh, verse 19 through 22, I would appreciate it. So, we've looked at how that Jesus is the head of the church, but He's also the foundation, the cornerstone. Everything that is built upon the church It's built upon Him. It could not be built without Him. And I think it's really neat here when you read these verses, it talks about we're no longer strangers, we're no longer foreigners, but we're citizens with the saints. And so we looked last week about how we are the saints of God. And it says there, though, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And some churches would say uh, that's why they try to say that Peter was the first pope and that uh, anyway, but that's really not what it's teaching here. The foundation is not the men themselves. It's the writings that God gave them. The fact that they wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament. And so it's not the men. It is the message that they presented. And we know that from the scriptures that the individual that takes the message is not important. It's the message that is taken. And so these men, what they did for the Lord uh, is definitely the foundation of the Scriptures that we have today in the New Testament. It says Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, that, that, that part that has to be there for a, a building to stand. And so, But I like it there in verse 21 because we talked about being a holy temple as individuals, the temple of God, but it says being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so you think about that, that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but yet when God brings us together into the family, He is building something together. And so we're all part of what God is building if we know Him as the Lord and Savior of our life. This is very important because what it means that if, if God saves someone and brings them into the family, they have value. They have a part to play. Right, You uh, decide one day that this is a beautiful building, it's worth millions and millions of dollars, but I just don't like that window right there. I think I'll just take that window out, no reason to replace it, let's just, it's just, it's just there, it's a part. I can promise you in about December when we're back here in Bible study uh, and there's snow on the ground and it's nine degrees outside, that window and it being missed, it not being there is going to make a big difference. And what we don't realize as believers is that when someone that God has really saved and brought into the church for whatever reason doesn't feel like church is important or or doesn't feel like they want to be committed, we're missing a part. We're missing something that God is trying to put together. And so while it might not seem that it's a big deal, it is. 
Literally, think about if one air conditioner is down in the middle of summer and your Sunday school room is the one that that air conditioner takes care of. None of you are excited. No one comes out and says, I'm just so thankful I got reminded what it was like without air conditioning. No, it's marched right out in the hallway. We need to get that fixed right now. All right, I ain't sitting in that classroom if i got to sweat ever again. Why? And that one part in the grand scheme of things and all these thousands of square feet doesn't really make much sense. But it does. Think about a lock on the bathroom door. Not a big deal till somebody opens it up on you. You see, everything is a part of what God is building and we have to remember that as we love one another, as we care about one another that people have value, that they belong, and that we are to love them and to encourage them and to help them. But He is the foundation. And if He's not the foundation, nothing can be built. Even though Jesus is the focus of everything that is built, we have to be reminded that He has given us a mission to complete. We don't just show up here to eat and to fellowship. God has called us to do something. And in Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 11, if somebody would read those as the Apostle Paul writes these words. So what we see here is Paul is just being humble. He's saying, you know, I was, I was the last one. I, I persecuted believers. He said, I am least of the least when it comes to those who are serving God. And he says that, but yet the grace was given. The task that God had asked Paul to accomplish, grace was given. And we need to be reminded that whatever God has called us to do, whatever God has asked us to do, He will give the grace that is needed. He will give the skill that is needed, the gift that is needed. And it says that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I think that's really special because if you knew anything about Paul... Paul is as Jewish as Jewish can be, right? He is the poster child for what a good Jewish guy would look like from the religious aspect of it, from his uh, everything. And yet he is called by God to go to a group of people that the Jewish people did not like, didn't care about. And so tonight I just really want you to see this, that God might be calling you to do something that you have no desire to do. You say, well, God gives us the desires of our heart. Yes, but our hearts are wicked. And sometimes God has a purpose and plan for our life, and yet we're not very willing to do it. And so what we see here is that God had called him. God had brought him in and sent him out. And that's the same thing that we have as a church. We have the Great Commission. And we're to take the gospel to the world. I uh, have been doing a lot of home visits this week and last week just different people in church and shut-ins and homebounds and things like that. And, and what I can tell you is for every family I visit, uh, there are usually at least five or six close family members that they have that are not involved in church, uh, don't seem to have a relationship with the Lord, and that burdens them. And so if you think of a congregation this big, and let's just say... Uh, uh, let's say there are 300 families every month that we are cared for, and every family has uh, five people in it that are lost. Just five people. Uh, that number begins to grow, right? And just think about the amount of people who need the gospel. 
And then if you take that, many times it's a parent who is raising their kids and none of them are in church or a, a grandchild and none of them are in church or don't have a relationship with the Lord. And so we need to remi- be reminded that God has a mission for us and that we don't do things just to be doing them. And it's really something that the Lord really was pressing on my heart is, is of all these people that... Uh, I was talking to, naturally, the answer is always, well, why don't you share the gospel with your family? And uh, and some of them have, and others are like most of us. Well, it just, you know, it's uncomfortable, or I tried to, or or maybe you could go visit them, and, and I'm always willing to go visit. It don't bother me at all. I've had many a door slammed in my face. I've had many a curse word <laughs> said to me. I'll, I will go. But how many people are not being reached? How many people are not being visited? How many people are not having someone show them that they matter to the Lord? Because look what it says there in that last verse. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now, this is, uh, I think, very important uh, because uh, I think it's easy sometimes to look at what others are going through and think, oh, it's just awful, that's terrible. But what Paul is saying is, I'm going through this for you. I am sharing the gospel and people are stoning me and they're, they're, I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, but yet it's, it's to reach, it's to teach, it's to be who God wants me to be. And so tonight I just want to encourage you that uh, you don't give up, uh, you don't quit. Uh, when things don't seem to go the way that you want them to, that they don't go the same way that I want them to, because God has a purpose and a plan, and sometimes He is trying to reach people through the difficulties that we go through. Well, how do we accomplish this mission that God has given each and every one of us? Well, Jesus is our source. He is the focus of what we do. There in verse 21 of Ephesians 3, if somebody would read that, I would appreciate verses 20 and 21 there. Mark that wrong. Now, we have to be careful here because the television preacher has hijacked these verses and said, if you want to be more wealthy, God will do more and exceedingly and greater. And uh, on the other hand, we look sometimes and think, well, we're just made to suffer. We're just made to toil and trial and, and to have difficulties. But what we see here is... Uh, Paul starts in verse 14 talking about the church, about those who are in the family of God. He starts asking that God would grant us the riches of His glory to be strengthened throughout the Spirit. And he works through this and he starts talking about being grounded in love and that we may be able to understand the saints and all of these things. And in verse 19 it says, "...to know the love of Christ..." which passes knowledge, and you may be filled with all fullness. And so what he's talking about is how God is at work in your life and in mine. That God is able to work in me exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. I uh, yesterday was uh, at lunch and I was uh, doing a Bible study on the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, not just the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the 
flesh. And so I'm, I'm writing them all out and I'm making no, uh, notes and, and, uh, I've, lately I've struggled with some, some anger. And so it says there are fits of wrath or, are one of the fruits of the flesh. And so I'm like, I need to really spend some time with the Lord here. And as I'm doing this and I'm, I'm reading about self-control and, uh, the next visit right after lunch, I, I want my, I just, I make notes like this. This is usually what my sermon notes look like. It's just really, just handwritten, scribbled out that way. When people say, well, you got it off the internet. It's like, no, they don't come like this off the internet. And like the one lady said, pastor, we know you don't get them off the internet because no one else preaches that bad. But, uh, you know, I appreciate the honesty. And so I folded it up, put it in my pocket. And I went to this lady's house and I said, uh, what can I do for you? How, what did, what did you need? She goes, I want to talk to you about the fruit of the spirit, about self-control. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, let me pull out my notes here, and and, uh, and that's it's not just a struggle I have, but that others have. And so many times as believers, we make excuses like this. Well, my parents had a temper, and when they got mad, they'd scream and cuss and throw a fit, and that's just how I am. That's just who I am. But yet what we see here is, in what God has given us to accomplish His purpose, is not that it's just enough but that He is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And the power that works in us is the very Spirit of God. And so the Spirit of God working in us, the Bible says, He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so whatever thing of the flesh that I am dealing with or I have made an excuse for, there really isn't one. God has promised me in my life that He is able. And it's funny because it goes on and says, To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Because sometimes we're tempted to think, well, the Spirit of God doesn't work just quite like He worked then, right? And and God can't change me like He changed Paul. Or God can't change me like He changed Peter. But yet it says there that the power and glory of God is to all generations until the Lord comes back. And so when we say, well, yeah, but but you know what? It was easy to be uh, in Paul's day or it was easy in, in this day. There's nothing in Paul that is not in you. The Spirit of God. We believe that you get the Spirit of God when you got, get saved and you are able to respond to Him. And so thoughts. Absolutely. But the question is, the thorn in the flesh, would it have been a sin that Paul struggled with or would it have been a physical thing? Because I don't personally believe it would have been a sin that he struggled with because literally it talks about what God is doing in us. And so whether it was an external, whether it was a physical, uh, all of those things, we don't know for sure. But I think we have to be very careful to say, well, Paul had a temper and he just couldn't overcome his temper and he, he prayed for it, but that, that thorn wasn't removed. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, and that's what it literally says there, to Him be the glory, right? It's God who gets the glory when our lives are changed, when we watch those spiritual victories go in our life, it's Him, and we should give Him the credit. Well, I've really worked hard on my temper, and I finally overcame it. No, it's not how that works. 
You have yielded to the Spirit. You have not quenched the Spirit, but it's God who has given you that victory over your struggle. Uh, the third thing I want to show you here, and I'm just going to wade right into it, and this will be fun for everybody. Uh, God wants His plan and purpose for the church to be known. And when we read Ephesians chapter 5, um, a lot of people get real upset in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, there's a second word in that first sentence that just really uh, stirs up the hearts of so many people. Um, but when we read this and we think about this marriage chapter, uh, we see here that Paul is doing something bigger than just talking about marriage. He's talking about how marriage is a picture of God's love for the church. And, and it really should, before we even read it, we should step back and say, okay, if marriage is a picture for Jesus and His church, what is my response to Him? And as I look at who He is and who I am, and in that relationship, then I'm going to view marriage. But we also have to remember something. While the church will someday be made perfect, and Jesus is perfect, we are not as husbands and wives. And so when it talks about perfect love towards your spouse, it doesn't happen perfectly here. When it talks about submission to your husband, it doesn't happen perfectly here. But yet it is a picture of what the church is supposed to be. I, uh, I always like to listen to people I disagree with just to remember how stupid they are. And uh, I was living, listening to some half-infidel uh, teacher teach on this and... Uh, it was literally, this was a context of the day that they lived in. It's not a context for today. And the second word in that first sentence is not valid in today's world because of the, the, the movement of women's rights and the redefinition of, definition of marriage and family and all this stuff. And I listened to about four minutes of it and I was like, all right, I can't even put up with this. But, uh, but if Paul tied something to the church, the church is eternal. The church does not change. Christ does not change. And so it's not situational or generational or in the city that Paul was talking to. The church is worldwide. The church is for all time. And so we have to be very careful when the Bible ties something together that we don't go in there with our personal opinions and personal feelings and says, well, we just got to separate this all out. And so we'll just jump right in. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, I didn't put in everything in there, all right? I didn't put that, okay? Just reading what's there. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies." He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, and of his flesh and his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, 
and be joined to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so just a couple things I want to call to you from this passage of Scripture. Paul says in verse 32, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So why marriage exists is to show the lost and dying world that this is Jesus' relationship with us. Now we know that it's also for some natural things like uh, procreation and, and companionship and all those things, those wonderful things about marriage. But truly, marriage was created to show the world one day what Jesus' love for the church would look like. And so, if you want to know why most churches are in shambles, I'm just going to tell you why. It is because most homes are in shambles. And friends, we can come to church and act like our marriage is honoring to God, that it's being done God's way, but it is a symptom when we see churches unhealthy because homes are unhealthy. I'm just throwing that out there. And the church will never be what God wants it to be until our homes are what God wants them to be. Until my wife and I can love each other and care for each other and be who God wants us to be, it is not possible for us to be a part of this church the way God wants us to be. You say, Jake, I don't agree with you. Well, I would call your attention to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where it says, if a pastor cannot manage his own home, then he is what? Not fit to lead a church. I didn't write that. Paul wrote it. And so I hear this all the time from people. If you want to be used by God, start with letting God work on you. And then let God work on you and your spouse. And then when God begins to work there, then step out into ministry. Then step out into those opportunities. But most of us are trying to fight for the Lord with one arm tied behind our back. And that is because our home is in shambles. And so tonight I just really want to call your attention to that because as this church moves forward and as God continues to bless it, there will always be a tendency to lower the standards that God has given us. No organization on its own, stays the course. It always goes too far to the left or too far to the right. It goes too far to a sense of legalism and a sign of works-based, or it goes so far to the left that it becomes liberal and to an idea of personal feelings. And so the only way that this church will be what God wants it to be is one, a couple principles. And you can write these down because they're not in your notes. If somebody would find Isaiah 40, verse 8. Isaiah 55, verse 11. Isaiah 40, verse 8. And Isaiah 55, verse 11. Because tonight, and as we go forward, this church has to make a decision of what am I going to do with God's Word? And why does God's Word matter? Because friends, I can take you to churches that are bigger than us, that are following God's Word worse than us. And I can take you to churches that are smaller than us and are seeking to honor God through His Word better than us. The size of a church means nothing in its health. All right, And I don't mean that to be critical, 
But a church of this size can be rotting from the inside out if we're not being who God wants us to be. And so Isaiah 40, verse 8, my favorite verse, one that I hope my funeral sermon will be preached around. So, I want you to proclaim something. What do you want me to proclaim? Here it is. The grass withers, the flower fadeth, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. There will never come a time where the word of God changes. There is never a time when it needs to be corrected. There is never a time when it needs to be reinterpreted. And if you want to see God's blessing on your life and on your home and on this church, you have to have it settled in your mind that God's Word is true. All of it's true. When it talks in the book of Genesis that God created the world thousands of years, not millions of years, you've got to settle it. You cannot question it. And if you can't believe it, then you won't believe any of it. I've been having a discussion every Wednesday night with a young man who just cannot wrap his head around the fact that Genesis is literally true. But Jesus quoted Genesis repeatedly with the understanding that it was true. He quoted the Old Testament and the miracles that it was exactly that way. And Satan is on full out attack to convince you that the Word of God is not true. Every kid's movie, every adult movie, Every little thing that you see, it is always chipping away at the authority of God's Word. And so while you and I would say our arguments always start with, the Bible says, for the overwhelming majority of people, that doesn't matter. It could be wrong. It could be a mistake. I don't know if you saw this or not, but a recent survey said somewhere in the neighborhood of only 16% of Americans believe the Bible to be totally true. I don't know if you know this or not, that's not very many people. Especially spread out all over America. Especially when you start to think about the state that we live in, in states like New York and and, and California and, and then the Bible Belt, how probably the proportions are different. And so we need to remi- be reminded that just because we believe this to be true, the world doesn't, and that's okay. This church cannot be based on what the world thinks, what the New York Times thinks, what Oprah thinks, what them yahoos on The View thinks. It does not matter. And this church has to settle that, that it does not matter. We believe God's Word. And that is going to be the standard for everything. If Jake preaches something that's not in the Bible, doesn't matter how much we like him or don't, he's wrong. Doesn't matter how much my Sunday school teacher, how many times they've visited me and been there for me, if he teaches something that God's Word doesn't say, he's wrong. Children's church, it don't matter where it's at. The Word of God is the standard and it won't change. Isaiah 40 verse 8. And you're like, oh man, that was rough. But it's just so good. Who found Isaiah 55 verse 11? One of my second favorite verses. Okay. So I always like to read the, the wonderful verse and then the verse ahead of it. Because it talks about how God's Word never returns void. It always accomplishes its purpose. And just when we begin to think, well, maybe I disagree with that, go back and read the verse before. He says, just as water comes from heaven, it don't turn around and float back right up. Right? It runs off into streams and creeks and lakes and and it accomplishes its purpose. So is the Word of God. And so you might say, well, Jake, that sermon was boring, it was long, it was exhausting. It has a purpose. If you and I will listen, if you and I will pray, if you and I will study... Sometimes water is good for crops. Sometimes too much water can destroy crops. 
Sometimes water can fill a lake that needs to be filled. And sometimes water can come so heavy and so fast that it floods a valley. And so you and I need to recognize something that if you and I will share God's Word, whether it's in witnessing to people, whether it's in raising our children, whether it's in being the church, it will never return void. Sometimes it might drive people away, and that's okay. It's not what we want. We want people to repent. We want people to believe. But friends, you need to know that the Word of God never returns void. And what that means for me is, if the church is based on God's Word, and God's Word is the foundation, and we will proclaim the Word of God, we never have to worry about the results. God is going to accomplish something. I just have to trust Him and declare. That's not always comfortable. That's why I don't like doing Wednesday night Bible studies. I don't like teaching Sunday school, because I really don't like questions. It's not that I don't like questions, it's just I don't like dumb questions. And dumb questions are not what you're thinking. But dumb questions are when someone specifically asks something that they know the Bible doesn't teach. And everything in me wants to say, I'm not touching that. Right? You know what it says. You're just trying to get me to say something that will go on that little video and some half-infidel liberal will listen to it and will stop me at Family Dollar and say, did you really say wives submit to your husbands? Yes, I did. Well, I don't agree with that. Because in that moment, all I want to do is say, I don't care. Just keep on shopping. But it's not very Christ-like. And so what we see here, though, is that God promised to honor His Word. The question I have for you is, do you trust it enough to stand on it? Do you trust it enough to teach it? Do you trust it enough to believe it, regardless of what anyone else says? Thoughts, questions. I know I talked quite a bit there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say that the unbelieving world doesn't see that, do they? They don't. And they can't see it because yeah. the Spirit doesn't you know, open the pages of the Scripture. I just mean consistency. Oh, right. No. Because if you drive uptown to what the Methodist Church says, well, they're going to say this. You drive over to the Presbyterian Church, they're going to say this. You drive over to the Generally Baptist, they're going to say this. Now, most of those, you will hear the same things on the things that matter. You drive to the Catholic Church, the Mormon Church, the, the all these different groups, and so the world doesn't have a clear voice. I would, I would correct It is, but they call themselves a church. Is what I'm trying to say. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. 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 Well, yeah, but if you look at the, just the Southern Baptist Convention, for those of you who have been Baptist for a long time, uh, in the 70s and the 80s, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention tore itself apart because you had a group of people who said, we believe the Bible is true, 
And you had another group that said, well, it's probably not totally true. And so thousands of churches left. We're not talking about, we're talking about churches that by all accounts would have been Bible-believing, mission-minded, soul-reaching churches, but yet they couldn't. They just could not come to that understanding that it has to be true. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and so if you study any church history at all in America, the Southern Baptist Convention is the only denomination, which is not a denomination, who had a fight and ended up turning back to what the Bible says. The rest of them just went the case. And you're seeing it in the Methodist church right now where hundreds of Methodist churches are leaving all the time uh, over the issue of homosexuality in the pulpit, whether or not a homosexual should be a pastor. And the Methodist church has said that's not a problem, It's we're going to let it. But yet conservative Methodist churches, the one in Fairfield, uh, uh, there's one in um, Marion, have said we, we can't be a part of this. This is where we draw the line and are, are leaving. You saw in Georgia, a hundred and some churches left in uh in North Carolina, 37 churches have left. Why? Because the whole group as a whole has said, we're going this way. And they've said, well, we'll we can't. Where Southern Baptists said, no, we're going this way. And that other group left. And so uh, while our denomination has many problems, uh, if you were to go to our six seminaries where they're teaching thousands and thousands of young preachers and missionaries, uh, the number one article in our faith is that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, and you can read that, and every professor has to sign it. They have to teach it. Uh, the students have to agree to it that the Word of God is our foundation. And so while I'm sure not everybody does, because let's be honest, we've all seen people lie to get a paycheck, uh, that's where we are. And so I'm very thankful for that. Other thoughts? Yeah, it is. And so that's why you see these churches that are pulling out. I know, uh, I think it was the church, uh, and I won't say which town specifically because I don't want to get somebody sued. Uh, they had to pay two years worth of their, their dues, and they had to pay a 10% of the property value. And so the value was uh, of the property was, I think, $3.5 million. And so by the time they wrote that check and two years worth of dues, it cost them $500,000 to just be a church not aligned with that. And most churches are not going to spend $500,000 to do that. And so I commend those churches and I pray for them and I'm thankful for them that said, you know what? It's worth it. Half a million dollars to change nothing. <laughs> to have the same building, the same everything, but yet the freedom to know what God has to say for you. So I'm very, very thankful for that. Not for them going through that, but for them willing to do that. Yes, for them standing strong. Yeah. Yeah, I got lots of opinions on the worldwide Methodist church I'd love to say, but I won't. So, but, um, no, we better not. It's best not to say it. Anything else? So I hope tonight that you will settle that debate in your mind and in your heart that the Word of God is true and that if we will just believe it and we will preach it and we will trust it, God will honor it. You say, well, Jake, I know churches that preach the Word of God and there are very few people there. 
Well, that's, that's not, the, the goal is not numbers, it's faithfulness. And so as long as that church will be faithful, and they'll do what God has asked them to do, God will take care of it. Most churches don't get in trouble because the Word of God is not being preached. Churches get in trouble because there's sin in the pews that won't be dealt with, or there's sin in the pulpit that won't be dealt with. Uh, you can go to almost any little Baptist church in this county. I know almost every pastor. Uh, I listen to them, and I might not agree with everything, but the thing that matters is the thing that matters. And so uh, whatever else is going on, whether it's it's sin, whether it's uh, uh, just God is ready for a different season, those are just things that we have to just trust to Him.